it's a blessing. It's also a lot of pressure because there's only one color medal that Canadians want, and that's gold all the time. And it should be that way, and it is that way, and we always felt that. But when you win the gold, it is a special thing. When you put that Canadian jersey on, it is very special representing your country. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. We are back to explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada as we better understand what it means to follow Jesus in light of the cultural changes that we're dealing with here in our country. Joining me on today's program, we have NHL Hall of Famer Mike Gardner. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here, David. I'm looking forward to it. It has been a little while, but from what I understand, it was about 14 or 15 years of age when you realized that pro hockey was something that you could do. Before that, did you have an aspiration to do something differently as a career? No, not really. I mean, I was just a kid growing up and just enjoying being a kid. I came from a very supportive family and uh, I have four older sisters and my mom and dad. And I just, I was kind of drawn to sports. I was pretty good at, uh, at most, most sports and, and played all the different sports. Even when I was going to high school in Barrie, I played rugby and I played basketball and I played football and I, lo- I loved all the sports. I played lacrosse in the summer and I, and I played hockey. And it was at that time, as you said, around 14 or 15 years old that, you know, I started to kind of excel uh, even more at hockey. And there was, you know, different interests from different teams. And I had a great experience in my my very minor hockey days, uh, playing with a lot of a lot of good friends that are still good friends to to this day, and I was asked to play up a year for about half a season and go play midget hockey for the Barry Co-op Midget Team, and they had just entered a a nationwide tournament at that time called the Wrigley Tournament, which was um, a tournament for midget age, which is draft age uh, hockey players, young hockey players, and um, the tournament was to, to determine a national champion. So I played on that team and was was very fortunate that we uh, we beat all the AAA teams in Toronto. And then we went on and won the Ontario Championship and and went to Oshawa for a, uh, a tournament where all the provinces were represented. And we actually won that tournament. So we were national champions back in 1974-75 and represented Canada in a five-game tournament over in, over in Russia. I think from that whole thing, kind of coming out of that, realizing that that maybe there was a chance that I could continue to play hockey at a higher level. So that's that's when it became much more serious for me. Still fun and an enjoyable game, but much more serious. And I stopped playing all the other sports that I played and, and concentrated on hockey at that time. Mike, by the time you get to the NHL, you continue to be this offensive force, scoring goals, skating around opposition. And that doesn't always happen among junior players sometimes they you know they are among the the leaders in the OHL or the WHL by the time they get to the NHL uh, they have to take a different role on their team what do you think it was about your skill set that allowed you to keep being an elite player even at the next level I think a big part of it was was my skating ability because I was able to to play through junior hockey and still be one of the fastest players I, I stepped into pro hockey and uh, and found out kind of surprisingly that I was still one of the fastest players, even at the pro level. And so, you know, you're also working on that. You know, when I first started playing in the NHL, I was six foot, you know, 170 pounds. And 
And, you know, I could skate really well, but I really wasn't very all that strong. I was strong on my skates, but I needed to get stronger. And so you start working out more, you start developing different strengths, you start working on your skating, which I did. And so that asset continued to uh, to help me as I kind of went along. So that was kind of the uh, the bedrock asset that I had as a player and then started to develop other skills along the way as well. Always had a good shot, but I really worked hard on my shot. Um, so that it was both, you know, quick, a quick release. It was hard, but it was also accurate. So you have to work on all those things, which I did. Um, stick handling, I was, you know, I, I always felt I was a fairly average stick handler. So it was something I worked on a lot just to get better hands. And you see that in the game now. I mean, the, all the players coming in uh, have such a high skill set because they work at it all the time. We see some of the uh, the players, the pros train in our hockey arenas, the national training rinks down in our, our Richmond Hill facility and actually in our Barry and Newmarket facility as well. And we see the, these pros come in and and it's it's unbelievable their skill set. So um, I really just took that. I took my basic assets and, and worked on my game and I was able to stay healthy enough uh, to you know, try and continue to chip goals in every year. You're considered one of the greatest skaters of all time. If you had to look at a modern-day player like Connor McDavid, do you see his abilities to get around the ice similar to yours? Well, Connor, I, I was very fortunate in the skills competition. The uh, the record that I had for fastest skater actually stood for 20 years after I uh, after I retired, and I felt pretty good about that till Connor McDavid came along and beat it. But I saw him as a young player. I, I've met him a number of times. He's a really quality young man. His family is terrific. And uh, his first three steps are probably the best three steps I've ever seen in hockey. One thing that Connor can do is he can do everything at full speed. And trust me, even at the most elite level and the NHL level, um, the puck slows you down. It just does, even when you're a pro. Um, even if it's not noticeable, the puck does slow you down. With Connor, I don't think the puck necessarily slows him down at all. And that's a very, very rare talent. Yeah, he's something else. The Oilers obviously have a, a strong name, especially uh, with some of the, the, the forerunners in that franchise. You began your career in some uh, places like Minnesota and Washington. Uh, maybe a little bit less exposure than a place like Edmonton or, or Toronto where you would be later on in your career. Do you think this helped you in some ways to not maybe have as many distractions and to be able to focus on your craft as you've been sharing? Well, it was a, it was a unique experience because I did. I played 10 years. I was drafted by the Washington Capitals, played 10 years in Washington. And at that time, we had two beat writers that uh, that traveled with us. And so we had two guys that were writing about the team. There were no cameras around, no, no camera crews ever came to the dressing room until the playoffs rolled around. And then we'd see an NBC crew or an ABC crew show up or something like that. Now, remember, we're talking about a time where there were three major networks and there were only a, you know, a handful of major papers. There was not social media at that time and obviously no Internet going on. So I figured for about 10 years, I, I was kind of flying under the radar and it's it's been written before that I probably scored the quietest 400 goals in NHL history. <laughs> and I came out and I started playing. I played a year in Minnesota and then went to the New York Rangers. And uh, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm coming up on 500 goals when I was with the Rangers. It's like, where did those 500 goals come from? So <laughs> they were a little further south and a little further east. Let's stick in Washington just for a little bit longer. So you your second year there, I believe, a new player joins your team and a guy that's had a lasting impact on your life to this day 
Talk about that experience a little bit of what it was like to observe Pronovo. Yeah, when John Pronovo, he was playing for uh, Atlanta and he got traded to our team. And, and I remember uh, when he first came into, into the dressing room, uh, John was a former 50-goal scorer in the NHL. He was a right winger and I was a right winger. And, and he was somebody that, uh, that I, I was really looking forward to getting to know. But I remember some of the guys on the team at the time said, you know, he's, he's kind of religious. So you might, you might want to kind of steer clear of him a little <laughs> bit because he's got, he's got these, uh, these religious uh, beliefs and he's kind of like, uh, could be what they call a born again Christian. And I thought, okay, I've never really heard the term born again Christian before, but, uh, I guess I'll keep an eye on him, so to speak, but I hope that he helps me with, with, uh, some of the things he knows about hockey. Cause that was what I was really interested in. So, I got to know John uh, very well over that uh, that year, and uh, you know John really spent a lot of time with me, which was kind of ironic because here I'm a young right winger, he's an older right winger, and I'm probably getting groomed to take his his position. And here he spent so much time with me, um, and you know he, he probably uh, he probably got tired of me asking him so many questions, but uh, he also was was very friendly and and invited a lot of us over to his house for dinner and young guys that couldn't cook and everything, so we would go over and anyway I, I really watched him how he handled himself and and uh, knowing that he was a, a Christian man it that also drew me to him because I wanted to know what all that was about. It was not something new to me. I was raised in a in a good home we went to we went to church and so I had a very basic belief but it was not a personal relationship and so John started talking about the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and and that was something that uh, that I had never really heard before and and so really it was through a lot of uh, a lot of discussions with him uh, he had bible studies at his house that some of the players went to and had a ton of different questions uh, for him about uh, a lot of things dealing with faith and dealing with what is required and dealing with the idea of us being separate from God, you know, through the sin that we had, uh, were born with in our lives and, and kind of developed, unfortunately. And so I think it was through those discussions that I came to a point in my life where I had a lot of information and, um, and I needed to figure out what I was going to do with that information. And so, uh, I came to the point where I looked at it and thought, hey, I either need to just kind of reject this and get on with my life or I needed to accept it and take it for uh, for what it is. And that was the truth. And so uh, I decided at that time that I it was enough information for me and I understood um, the whole idea of, of salvation and in God's plan of salvation for my life. And so I accepted that and and. I guess it was around 1981 that uh, the spring of 1981 that that I became a Christian and started to look at my life in a much different way. Yeah, talk to me about that. Like, how did this change your outlook towards hockey, for instance? Yeah, I mean, it, I was actually more concerned than anything. I don't know if it, it changed my outlook for uh, of hockey immediately. What it did is it made me a little bit nervous because I thought that hockey needed to be played with an edge. And so I thought somehow I was going to, I was going to lose the edge because of my faith, not based on any any reality or knowledge, just on fear more than anything. And what I found was uh, was that that was not the case at all. As a matter of fact, I felt almost more dedicated in my life. I felt like I was given 
the tools and the abilities uh, that God had given me the opportunity. And I felt a real sense of responsibility to do the best that I could possibly do with that ability. And so um, what I was fearful of was that I would lose the edge. And, and I found that I didn't lose the edge at all, that I actually increased uh, my commitment to the game, my commitment to my teammates, my commitment to my family, and uh, became not only a better person, but for me, a better hockey player uh, at that time as well. Mike, you mentioned learning and uh, how this is a continual learning. In your speech that you gave back in 2017 of being named into the top 100 players of all time, you referenced your coach, Roger Nielsen, and how you, at that point in your career, you thought you'd, you know, you had been around for a while, you, you knew hockey. And kind of going back and forth with Raj, it was like, I really didn't know hockey. What did, what did he teach you? Raj was such a unique man. So I, I, I was traded to the Rangers and Roger was the coach in the Rangers. So I played about 15 years at that time, 14 or 15 years. And so, you know, I've been around and had a lot of success. And yet Roger knew the game like way better than I knew the game. And Roger was way ahead of his time because you know, he was, he was Mr. Video, right? So everything was on video. And so we, we analyzed video like way before video was, was popular. As a matter of fact, nobody really liked it that much until you started to see, because you could see all your mistakes in slow motion all the time. But, you know, Roger talked about shooting lanes. He talked about angles. He talked about, you know, he could stop things on So instead of looking at X's, X's and O's on a whiteboard, you could actually see it on a screen and um, and he had a great philosophy of the game. And, you know, you look at all the guys that Roger coached over the years. So many of those guys stayed on in hockey and continued to do uh, to coach and manage um, guys to this day that are that are coaching. So Roger trained like a whole generation of, of coaches. Um, he had this coaching clinic every summer and he would uh, he would have the coaching clinic for co- for, you know, junior coaches and that. But most of the pro coaches that were coaching in the NHL came to his clinics as well because he had such unique perspectives on the game. And, uh, and Roger himself was a very unique man. Like he was very eccentric and he would come in and, you know, I was used to coaches, you know, having a, uh, carrying themselves in a certain way. And I remember my first practice I came to uh, with the Rangers and Roger's walking around in a t-shirt and a pair of shorts and flip-flops on and his dog is, is, is in the dress room, like walking around in the dress room. It was just the way Roger, Roger was. And, and he spent all, you know, all day long at the rink. You know, how many times did we, did we catch Roger out in his car with his door open? And we'd kind of be thinking, be after practice or before practice or, you know, whenever it was. And, and Roger would be sleeping in his car with the door open and he'd just fall asleep. He was, uh, he was a unique man. He was a really, really great guy. And one of the things that Roger did is he was famous as well for his Christmas cards. So he had a Christmas oh. list. I think it ended up being, and I don't know what the exact number, but it was well over 2,000 personalized Christmas cards that he would send to his, his people that he knew. He would start them in the fall and he would handwrite all the notes because he thought that that was a great way for him to share his faith to the hockey world that he knew and he knew a lot of people, but, um, but he was so cheap too. Like he wouldn't pay for, he didn't want to be, he would, he would smuggle this stuff over the border in, uh, in hockey bags. Cause he didn't want to pay the postage. I think it was in, in Canada was, was way more than the U S who so didn't want to pay the extra postage. So 
he'd be he'd be having the guys put all this uh, all this mail in hockey bags, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So <laughs> a lot of good Roger stories. Uh, uh, he was uh, a friend of my family. Was, his house wasn't that far away from the farm that I grew up on, and I was at his funeral as a kid. And I remember the little I remember from that funeral was there was a lot of talk of his personal relationship with Jesus. How did he model Christ to you? Well, he, um, I mean, he, he was just all the things that you, you like, he didn't have to say anything. He just, just the way he acted. He, uh, you know, he didn't swear. He, um, you know, Roger, he just conducted himself in a way he didn't, of course you have to be critical as a coach sometimes, but Roger is never mean spirited about his criticism at all. Um, he had a great work ethic and, you know, all the things that you, you want your kids and your, in my case, your grandkids to, to develop as far as character traits, you know, Roger had a lot of those, um, had a very unique experience though, that, uh, Bobby Froze was playing on the team at that time. And, and Bobby and I were, we're at a Bible study with Roger. And so that's the first time I've ever been at a Bible study with my coach and uh, which was pretty unique because that that would be something that hadn't happened prior to that and never happened after that. So it was a it was a unique experience. Roger didn't seem to think anything of it. And I thought, well, if Roger doesn't think anything of it, I don't think anything of it. So that's pretty neat. One milestone that you never got to conquer was a Stanley Cup and you left the Rangers right before they would eventually win. Uh, and hoist Lord Stanley. What was it like for you to be in Toronto and to watch your former team win something that you'd been chasing your whole career? Well, it was tough because I was in Washington, uh, New York for five years and our team, we had good teams all the way, all the way through. And you could just see us building towards that. So when I got traded at the trade deadline that year, you know, I really felt bad about leaving the Rangers at that time because I really felt that it was, it was our year. But on the flip side, I got traded to Toronto, who also had a really good team at that time and playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, a team that I grew up watching as a kid, was such a thrill to do that. And we got to the semifinals that year. There was, it was almost looking like we were going to you know, face the Rangers in the final. Vancouver beat us out and it was Vancouver ended up playing in the finals against the Rangers. But uh, yeah, watching them carry the Stanley Cup, I was both happy for them because these are guys that I knew. And played with for a number of years, but also it was uh, it was a little sad at the same time. Uh, let's broaden this out a little bit further. You did have a lot of accomplishments, not just in the NHL, but you represented uh, Canada on eight different occasions. What was it like to don the Maple Leaf, not the Toronto Maple Leaf, but the Canadian Maple Leaf? It was an absolute privilege. It really was. I mean, it started back when I was uh, 15 years old when we won the Midget National Championship, and then I played you know four times in the world championships and then uh, three Canada cups. And I think the, the thing is, is that uh, for instance, the Olympics uh, as we see are, are not going on this year with professionals, but they are going on. Uh, that's the way it was for most of my career. They, the Olympics uh, professional hockey players weren't allowed to play in the Olympics until 1998. And I retired in 1998. So um, we were always going to the world championships after you get beat out in the playoffs early a couple of players would go and go to the world championships, but it was never a best on best, but the Canada cup was. And so I had uh, the great privilege in 1984. And then again, in 1987 of representing Canada in the Canada cup where we won gold medals in both those times. So, um, and then the 1987 Canada cup was, was such a thrill. 
watching Mario and Wayne at the prime of their careers and a whole bunch of other of us that uh, that were were there as well in the prime of our careers and and uh, having what's uh, considered one of the greatest Canadian teams of all time uh, is is something that is a very fond memory for me and I'm so glad that I was part of that and so glad that I was able to represent Canada. It's a uh, it's a blessing. It's it's also a lot of pressure because there's only one color medal that ca- Canadians want and that's gold all the time and uh, and it should be that way and it is that way and we always felt that um, but when you win the gold, it is a special thing. When you put that Canadian jersey on, it is uh, it is very special representing your country. Having played with Wayne and played against him, what would be one thing from his game or the way that he carries himself that the average person wouldn't know that you got to see, uh, and and he kind of made sense to you why he is he was as good or is still considered the greatest ever. You know, Wayne was so intuitive. Like they talk about hockey IQ, and if there was a hockey IQ, he he would have to have been the greatest person who ever had the highest hockey IQ that there was in that he could um, he could see the game. He obviously had unbelievable skills. He, he could, uh, you know, I mean, he, he scored over 90 goals one year. I mean, that that's that's an unbelievable mark to, you know, to to attain as, as a goal scorer. And he's never considered a huge, huge goal scorer, even though he scored more goals than anybody ever in the history of the game. But Wayne was also a student of the game. Like he, and he, he knew, knew the history of the game. He knew the players. He just kind of breathed the game. And it was, I, I thought Wayne always carried himself in such a professional manner. And um, he was always approachable that way. So, you know, I, I enjoyed playing with him on a number of occasions on Team Canada. I never played with him in the NHL, but we played together in Team Canada a few times. So, it was always a uh, always a pleasure to see see him at the top of his game. And Mike, what would be your opinion on whether NHLers should play in the Olympics or not? Well, uh, David, it's a good question because um, I'm sure the players that play in the Olympics love playing in the Olympics, right? I mean, who wouldn't like to play in the Olympics? I, I sure would. But I guess I've always looked at the Olympics as a, and it's always been um, for for amateurs for the most part. I think only the last number of years, professionals, obviously in basketball and well, in all the sports now can are playing in the Olympics simply because they're allowing it. But I've always thought that maybe a better way would be to resurrect the World Cup of hockey, whereas it'd be the same type of thing as in soccer. That every four years you get together and uh, and have a best on best type of a tournament that could be played at a different time of the year. One of the tough parts about professionals in the Olympics, especially in hockey, is that it happens in the middle of your season. And that's the tough part is closing your season down for a couple of weeks in order to participate in the Olympics. I think that it's a good thing when it all comes off well, but I think that uh, I think it could be something that they could take a look at too, having a uh, resurrecting a World Cup of hockey type of thing. Well, Mike, you're a great steward of this sport. And just in closing, I wonder if there would be a verse or just a message that sums up your life since becoming a Christian? Oh, I've got some great verses that I love. Uh, Isaiah forty-one ten. So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. Um, that pretty much says it all for me. Mike Gardner, NHL Hall of Famer, passionate follower of Jesus. Thanks for taking this time. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. 
And if you want to find out anything more about Mike Gartner's life as a hockey player or what he's doing today with National Training Rinks, you can head to the show notes at davidmanmedia.com. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. We give our attention to people of charisma, those who can effectively communicate. At the ripe age of 27, Raza Khan has been a conference keynote speaker, a university lecturer, and is currently a senior marketing manager for TELUS. He has a strong conviction for simplicity. One thing I came to learn very quickly was you can lose an audience extremely quickly if you're not speaking in their language. I think when you're, speak, when you're teaching concepts or when you're explaining something that's maybe difficult to understand, you want to reduce the layers of complexity. So what that means is, you know, like the concepts might be hard, but if the vocabulary you're using is also difficult, then there's two different things you're trying to process at the same time, and you basically lost them. For Culture to Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today, and we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.